forge your inner armor. Welcome to the Inner Armor Podcast with Dr. Timothy Royer, where we explore ways to train our brains and bodies to become dynamically resilient so that we can all, from professional athletes to ordinary people, perform at our potential. Well, good morning, Doc. Good morning, Greg. It's great to see you live today. I know. We're not, you know, doing this kind of telephonically or virtually or digitally. I mean, we're actually, you know, being present, sitting across the table from yeah. each other for a change. Yes, in a beautiful uh, September day in Michigan. Man, it is gorgeous out here. But oh, my I gosh. Yeah, September. If you've never been to this part of the country, <laughs> September here in West Michigan is just absolutely fantastic. My favorite month of the year. Yeah, I mean, you feel the fall, you know the colors are coming any day, and you can sense football in the air. Oh, I know. And a nice, yeah. warm drink, and oh, my goodness. Speaking of football, you've been busy lately. Yes, a lot of football stuff going on. It's that time of year that I'm on the road a lot with the 49ers, so I go a couple times a year, a couple times a month, excuse me, <laughs> and meet up with them during this time when they're on the road. I'll go to various cities. So I was just in Pittsburgh last week for the win there. Usually don't go to the games, but I get there a couple of days before and start working with some of the guys. And then it lessens how many times I need to get out to San Francisco because the season they're traveling, you know, East Coast or Midwest or wherever. So, You know, it must be interesting, maybe a conversation for another day, but just how sort of the cycle through the year for these guys. So there's off season, there's the preparation, there's the camps or this or that, but now it's it's sort of like the pressure's on. It's literally game time and they have to react to that, right? Yeah, and everybody's different. Like sometimes there's some guys who do want to be training a lot and doing a lot of work during the season. Then there's others that like to front load you know, like I'm going to do, you know, a lot before the season starts or in the spring, you know, some guys who will go get, you know, like stem cell and different things like that in the off season. And then you have some that at the end of the season, they want to get connected right away because they're just so fried. So everybody has a different rhythm and hopefully we train their autonomic nervous system enough that they're aware like when they need help. And then I'll have some guys that are like, Maybe go into the season th thinking they're ready to go, but then, you know, a few weeks in, I'll get a phone call like, hey, doc, I need to kick back my training. Then they'll go like really hard and right mid-season. And it's really amazing to actually watch how many times I've seen that person have a huge turnaround mid-season, which you think they'd be getting weaker, but they actually get stronger. So, you know, it's different. You know, we want to build, develop a base. You know, that's the very, the most important thing is we have this base of overall resilience. And then how we're tweaking, whether that's focus, recovery, not letting the sleep get off. A number one is sleep. That's why a lot of our guys have their own sleep study devices that they use throughout the season. They might not be actively training, but they're putting the sleep study device on so we can see how the sleep is going. But with the some teams, like the 49ers, they're, they're just training all the time. So, Well, as we kind of transition to today's topic, it's interesting because I think the NFL is just sort of a concentrated version of the kind of stress and pressure that a lot of people live under. Not all of us sort of live that out on television, but a lot of us live with a lot of stress and a lot of pressure, and it's very concentrated and visible for these guys, obviously, when America is watching or the world is watching you. But a lot of us sort of live that stress and pressure out in obscur obscurity with no, with no cameras. Right. And we don't necessarily have Doc Royer and a, a huge support system to help us you know, cope with it, manage it. So that's what we want to talk a little about today. Absolutely. About how stress and pressure and the demands of life can impact people. And increasingly, we're noticing are impacting people in our society. So a few episodes ago, we talked about the tsunami of mental health disorders. And we want to kind of cycle back to that again today because it's worth talking about more than one time. 
And we also have a, a new book coming out here mm-hmm. within the next month or something that's going to talk about specifically sort of the tsunami of mental health disorders and, and propose some ways to sort of address that. But today in this episode, let's talk about mental health, mental health disorders, and the scale of the kinds of problems that we're increasingly facing in the United States and other developed nations. Yeah, absolutely. Across the world, this is a problem. And I think it's important for our listeners to know that while we re- I really enjoy working in the peak performance world, work with, you know, quarterbacks and point guards and pitchers and, you know, all these pe- high profile people, you know, our real, real mission and, and goal is to help the average person, whether they're trying to get above a certain ceiling or they've dropped below a certain floor and we need to help lift them up. We are about regulating the nervous system. And when we can regulate that, that really changes a lot of things. And so, you know, what we do for an elite athlete is not very different for what we do with a person who's struggling with severe depression or autism or severe anxiety or PTSD. It's just approaching their brain at a different spot, whether it's below the floor or above the ceiling or someplace in between. I, I like you've talked about the, the autonomic nervous system envelope or this space, and we move people in that space. We're very good. We've been doing this for close to 30 years now of moving that space, whatever the issue is. So let's start at the beginning because a lot of these terms get, you know, bandied about and let's just start with you as a clinician and everything else. What is mental health? I mean, how do we understand what mental health is before we can understand what mental health disorders are or when we're not mentally healthy? What what does mentally healthy look like or mean or how do we understand that? Yeah, I mean, I think you start off with a great question, which is, and I really personally, I'm not a big fan of the word mental health, because what the heck does that mean? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it is kind of a strange word, you know, right? What is, what are you talking about? It, And I think a lot of times, if your starting point is these kind of abstract, vague, unmeasurable kind of things, then it's hard to set your path or course to something that's going to be successful or a certain goal. If I don't really have a target to shoot at, then I'm just kind of shooting 360 degrees in every direction, up and down and wherever. And so mental health is a, is a tricky term. And I'm going to even go on to say, as we maybe talk some in the book, about how we, we have to get the terminology much more succinct and much more scientific And for me, talking more about the autonomic nervous system, something that I can measure and how it functions, is an upstream definition of what eventually leads to what we might refer to mental health. But a component of mental health, a major component or the source of it, is the balancing or the regulating of your autonomic nervous system. So it's really a balanced autonomic nervous system, which is measurable. I can measure it before I do any intervention. I can intervene, and while I'm intervening, I can measure. And post, I can measure. Now, if you want to kind of go on with, you know, what is the, when people talk about mental health, you know, what are they talking about? They're talking about, you know, how far removed am I from specific diagnoses in the DSM? And so in the DSM is the manual of all these mental disorders. And in a subjective way, the person who doesn't really have anything in the book, the DSM is probably more mentally healthy than the person who has so many different boxes they can check. Yeah. I see. I find this fascinating in all the years that we've worked together because two things strike me about it. One is that, as you're saying, you sort of define mental health in the negative. Yep. Right. So instead of telling me what a mentally healthy person is, what you tell me is, what is a mentally unhealthy person, right? Right. So I can point at this and say, well, you don't have this disorder, you don't have this disorder, you don't have this disorder, so therefore, I guess you're healthy. And it's a sort of a weird way that we sort of define it in the negative. 
And then the other thing is it seems like it's vulnerable to templates or social templates or cultural templates or values templates, right? That you can say, hey, this person is mentally healthy or this person is mentally unhealthy. And, and again, you're going to impose whatever sort of social values or cultural values or political values you have on that, which is going to maybe label a person, even though that person may have outstanding qualities. Yeah. So to your point, we have to get past some of these labels and definitions and get to data. And that's where your work has always centered. When we look at the nervous system, the brain-body interaction, that when that's functioning well and what we you know, call this sort of performance zone or the autonomic envelope, the sort of operational envelope where everything's sort of working well and our brain-body connection is working well, then we can say, hey, that's, that's healthy. And when we, when we sort of penetrate that envelope, either we breach the floor, we can't reach our ceilings, with other words, we can't sort of function in a healthy way. That's what we have to address. So for a lot of your work has been about trying to diagnose that through accurate data collection of the, the nervous system in the body, right? Yeah, trying to put a real structure around it, a map that we can follow to know where we are. You know, for me, it doesn't really matter where you are on the map. I know we can move you forward, but we have to find that spot on the map where are your feet where are you so that we know how to move you forward and i also think when you talk about the word mental health if we're not seeing it already we're going to see we're going to be inundated with people this app helps your mental health this you know cereal fixes your mental health this because since it is abstract it's very hard to protect that terminology, right? Like, I can't say that this is going to fix your PTSD because that's a very specific thing. But mental health, while it gets thrown into all these things because it's an umbrella term, it doesn't really have any protection. It doesn't have, like, title protection around it. So that means just anybody who wants to can come up with stuff about, like, if you live in this town, you will be more mentally healthy what in the heck are you talking about? Like mentally healthy right. or unhealthy? And are people who are real innovative and creative and different from other people, maybe even somewhat antisocial, are they mentally unhealthy? You know, I mean... Right. I mean, because you can go back to all the geniuses in history, right? Yes. You know, I've, I've, I've taught a couple of classes on Michelangelo's art and his life, and it's, it's so interesting when I've taken even groups over there to do the kind of the art history tours... And you go, this guy, like, would have been measured by any kind of DSM-5 today as a mentally unhealthy person. And yet, look what he created. And right. look what he was able to accomplish. And so, to your point, uh, it becomes really subjective. I want to lob a little hand grenade into this. Sure, let's go. Um, mindfulness. Mm. Because that seems to be, like, an incredibly squishy word that's thrown out, and I, I think that a lot of people have good intentions. I'm not saying everybody who uses the term mindfulness or pursues mindfulness is of bad intent or trying to do a wrong thing, but it just seems so squishy and subjective. How do I, how do I know what that is? How do I know if I'm achieving it? Oh, absolutely, and I think it's within mindfulness, there can be things that are super healthy for you. But there can also be, in mindfulness, because it's very subjective, things that you don't even know if you're managing correctly or if it's measuring. Like, a good example is when I measure an EEG in somebody. So we look at the, the electrical activity in the brain. Okay, we're not like, how are you feeling? You know, what's, you know, looking at the person subjectively and saying, oh, this person looks calm literally looking at the electrical current as they're engaging in mindfulness. If I took a hundred people, every one of them, their brain will look different. Okay, now the assumption, what we're thinking is, if I do this app, I do this program, I'm going to move these steps forward. But you're not measuring the steps, you're not measuring where the person is. And I have so many people that their brain is actually going in a direction 
that is actually negative for them during that moment in time. And they either get fed up with the process and say, well, this doesn't work. Or they actually might be training something that isn't really going to help them in the middle of that board meeting under pressure on how to how to focus but yet be calm or in that relationship where there's a conflict and they have to become creative to solve that conflict because they're they're almost downshifting so much and there's no measurement of that downshift that it's more like a sleepy state in the mind versus a calm focus and the only way that you can find that is to be measuring that, to be measuring the autonomic nervous system and saying, am I in, them, in that state? So I'm not saying throwing mindfulness out, but I'm saying legitimize it by measuring it, like watching what your heart's doing, watching what your breathing's doing, what's my body temperature doing, what's my skin conductance doing, what's my brain doing during this process, and then pick and choose what parts of that process are really sending you forward versus maybe you have some forward and some backwards and then it just kind of equals zero, <laughs> right? So, but it's a tricky one because, you know, people want to leverage these things. I think everybody knows there's something wrong. There's an itch that I need to scratch. They know it. They know it. But we throw these vague things that sometimes actually make the problem worse over time because we're not measuring it correctly. And so we don't legitimize it. We don't make it something that I can see that I'm moving the ball down the field. And what you can't measure, there's not a feedback loop for improvement. Mm -mm. We've talked about, about that before, where if I want to learn anything or train myself to do anything, if I want to learn French... Unless there's somebody saying you're pronouncing that word correctly or you're using that word correctly or you're conjugating the verb correctly or not, I'll never really be able to speak the language. If I want to you know, run faster, if I want to go run a marathon, I have to sort of go out there and have a structured program where I figure out if I'm, you know, if I'm running better or further, whatever. So when we drop into some of these sort of mindfulness things, a lot of them, they're just unmeasurable. And, mm -hmm. and that's the difference. Okay, so we're talking about mental health, and as we said, in a lot of ways, mental health is defined by the absence of mental disorders. But as you said a moment ago, everybody senses that something is not right. Right. And I've got some statistics about how not right things Greg, are. Greg, you have statistics? I have statistics. I, I, that's just <laughs> such a surprise. Greg actually has statistics. Um, I have. The guy is a statistics machine. I cannot <laughs> wait for you to throw these by me. Let's go. Well, so let's look at this. Multiple studies and sources. I mean, if you can go out there and look at CDC, you can look at National Institutes of Health, you can look at university studies. They all kind of tell the same story. And that is that one in five U.S. adults, or about 50 million mm. adults, experience mental illness each year, with nearly a quarter of those being severe. So that'd be 12 and a half million each year with severe, severe. mental, severe mental Cannot disorders. even function, yeah. About the same number of youth between 16 and 17 have mental disorders. So if you add those up, you know, we've got something like 20 to 25 million youth or young adults in this country in any given year suffering a, a severe mental disorder and two or three times that, suffering maybe something that's not quite debilitating, but is making an impact on their life, right? Absolutely. Now, what's especially troubling about the youth stat is, and this was interesting, because you're a pediatric neuropsychologist. So here's a stat. Half of all lifetime mental illness begins by age 14 and 75% mm. by age 24. So what is happening to those young people a lot of times becomes a trajectory that they're never going to get off. And according to the statistic, if you can sort of get through your 20s without suffering severe mental disorders, you're probably going to get through life okay. But the early warning system are things that are going on between 6 and 17. Yeah, so let's pause there for a second because I want to explain what's going on there to the listener. 
and this is really important statistic that you understand, okay? In the area of, we'll just take depression, but this applies to all mental disorders. If I have a depressive episode, okay, and so that means I'm meeting all these criteria in the DSM related to my mood and my thought process and my behavioral responses that qualify for a major depressive disorder. If I go into a major depressive disorder, I have a 50% chance that I'll experience another one. Okay, so there's something about this kind of kick-in of the nervous system. Now, if we're measuring this stuff, it, it, does, it makes a lot of sense because these are neurons firing differently. This is different neurotransmitters in the brain that are firing, releasing. And these are patterns that are forming. You know, we've talked about this before. What is the, the most amazing thing we do as a human is we learn. We're learning all the time, okay? We've all learned in the last five minutes things. And we're learning, learning. We are learning machines all the time solving problems. Even when we're not thinking about it, we're solving problems. But this depression comes on the scene and it starts repeating itself and the brain actually starts to learn this. But it's not what we want it to learn. We don't want you to learn to be that way. But because our brain never shuts off, this is 24-7. These neurons are out of sync. These neurotransmitters are out of sync. My sleep cycle gets a little disrupted, a lot disrupted. That's probably one of the most missed things in this is how much sleep impacts this. And so the brain starts to learn this pattern. So now, even if I come out of that, which even if we didn't do anything, you'd probably get out of that in about 18, 24 months. That's just kind of how depression cycles. You come out of that. Now, the rest of my life, I have a 50% chance of having another episode so the, ne the next time there are conditions or stresses that prompt me in a certain way m my brain is going to fall back on what it did before right absolutely so you take your statistic one out of five right yeah. i've now become one out of two <laughs> right like I've, I've gone into a different pool okay because i went through it not i'm not in the same one out of five pool now, me having another one, I'm in a one out of two. That's 50%. That's pretty significant, right? I go into it again, let's say five years from now. Like at first, maybe it was as a child, some type of parental disruption or disruption of the family unit in some way, a death or whatever. I go, go through this thing. Then, you know, late adolescence, I go through this other thing where I'm trying to figure out my identity, loss of a girlfriend, not doing well in school, whatever, and boom, I'm back in that. So I went from the one in five to the one in two. Now I have a 75% chance of having another one. So I cycle through that, and then all of a sudden, it's 10 years later, I'm in my job, it's not going well, and I cycle into another one. So I've gone from this one in five to one in two. Now I have a 75% chance of having another one. If I have two of these, I now have a 90% chance. So it's like one in one of having, I'm going to have probably have another depressive episode, whether that's a midlife crisis, whether that displays itself as some type of cognitive issue, like it looks like I have a memory problem when I really don't have a memory problem, which I've seen so many times when uh, I've worked in psych med units where we assess for memory, where the person's not having dementia, they're actually depressed, right? So these statistics are actually fluid because once I learn it, it can keep worsening over time. So the funnel sort of narrows. Big time. Big but now time. let me throw another stat at you, Doc, relevant to that. According to the National Institute of Mental Health, Suicide is now the second leading cause of death wow. among 12 to 14-year-olds. Unbelievable. So what you're saying is once at 6, 8, 10, 12 years old, they enter into this cycle, it can be a downward cycle that they can't escape from. And increasingly, it ends tragically with them taking their own lives as, as young teenagers, 12, 13, 14, 15 years old. Absolutely. I mean, it's just tragic. I, 
when I was at the children's hospital for a decade, you know, one of my primary jobs was to go to the ICU any time of day, you know, sometimes in the middle of the night and assess a suicide attempt, you know, and this is in, you know, nice West Michigan, right. <laughs> everything's pleasant, right. you know, and, and you'd go up there and there'd be two or three kids that had experienced suicide on the child and child and adolescent floors. And what, what happens with this and depression and other disorders, but depression in particularly has been qualified. And we've talked about this before as the great imposter. It can hide itself in a lot of these downstream behaviors, emotions that like anger, the guy who's like angry all the time, you know, the husband who just can't be happy about anything, right? I'm not looking at his anger. I'm looking at what's the underlying anxiety or the underlying depression? Because depression is anger turned inwards, okay? As we, we kind of become this hostile person to ourself, which is where some of the self-destructive behaviors come about. But I think seeing that through the 90s was a major wake-up call to me that what we thought was going to fix all of this stuff was antidepressants, the SSRIs, actually did nothing. And instead of eradicating depression, which was what people talked about in the late 80s, it just kept getting worse and worse and worse. And now it's if it isn't already, it's about ready to be the leading cause of disability on the planet. Yeah. Right? 40%, according to CDC, National Institutes of Health, a 40% increase in anxiety and depression over just the last 20 years. So from 2003 yeah. to now. And, you know, as we were talking about it, we're going to talk about in the book, could you imagine any disease in which you would say it's increased by 40% in 20 years that we wouldn't be declaring a national emergency? That's an, it's it, just unbelievable that we're not, like, jumping behind this thing like we did COVID, right? So let me read you a quote from the American Psychological Association. They did a 2020 report called Stress in America. And they said that nearly half of adults, 49%, report their behavior has been negatively affected by stress mm. in recent years. Most commonly, they report increased tension in their bodies, 21%, snapping or getting angry very quickly, 20%, unexpected mood swings, 20%, or screaming or yelling at a loved one, 17%. And I think as we look around at society, the things that we, at least that we can see, you look at, I mean, go on to social media, go on to, right, you know, look at the public square, we're becoming a people that are snapping increasingly. I mean, it's the, the, the sense of community and charity and ability for people to simply work together, get along with their neighbors, get along with their coworkers, it, you know, get along next to the, to, to, to the guy they're driving next to in traffic. Yeah right? The, all of that is fraying, all of that our capacity for sort of social interaction. So when you talk about depression, anxiety, let, let's define those a little bit, right? Because are they the same thing or two different things? Let's, let's be accurate because anxiety, according to all the statistics, is the leading mental disorder in America, mm -hmm. depression shortly behind it. What exactly... I think it's the kind of thing a lot of people think they know what anxiety is or they, you know, know what when they feel anxious, but what technically is anxiety? Yeah, let me first go back to the what you were just talking about, like these 70% that yeah. you know are snapping and and these uh, decisions that are aren't good decisions, the impulsivity, the irritability. I would look at that as kind of a tolerance issue is we have a finite amount of bandwidth okay we talk about this a lot in the uh, disability world the reading reading disorder world where if somebody can't decode well it's hard for them to see letters correctly they're spending all their time decoding and then they get to the bottom of the page and they have no ability to comprehend 
you know, maybe some of our readers out there have had that, you know, like you, you, you do all this work to read that page, right? And then you're at the bottom like, shoot, what did I just read? Or you've seen your child maybe do this, right? That's kind of a tolerance issue. There's only a certain amount of capacity or energy you have to read that text. But it isn't just reading the text. You're reading the text to be able to comprehend the text, to, to know what was it that the author was trying to communicate to you. They weren't trying to communicate to you letters. They were trying to communicate to you a thought. This mirrors what we're talking about in this depression thing and this anxiety is that these things start to consume your bandwidth, your space, your perception of yourself, the perception of the world. We talked about the brain always learning. You're trying to solve these problems that are kind of like negative problems that take up so much bandwidth that you don't have the tolerance for the normal ups and downs of life. The fact that, guess what? People make mistakes. Okay? They make mistakes. Things happen. Some guy may not be paying attention to you and may accidentally cut you off. And he may purposely cut it off. But does that mean that you need to track him down, you know, so that you can give him the finger or whatever you were trying to do? Like, there's no tolerance in our culture. We don't have that bandwidth, that resiliency that we're looking for. So I think that's important for us to understand. Are people just like becoming meaner <laughs> and you know are they do they not care for mankind no it's more that this other thing is consuming them so much what do we say 49 percent right that's every other person is so consumed with these things that it's very hard for them to just function through the up and down of life right so defining anxiety and depression right that's what right you yeah. were asking me about so uh, b before you ahead. jump into that, just uh, you said something there that just intrigued me and had a thought. Yeah. So you talk about, and we've talked about a lot before, reading and trying to decode the letters on the page to discern what's really going on, mm -hmm. what the author wants to communicate. And it strikes me as we're talking about this, that there's a sort of social decoding that we have to do yeah. with people, mm -hmm. right? It's like kind of social IQ. And typically when you grow up, you're surrounded by a family, you're surrounded by neighbors, kids in school, whatever, and you learn how to socially decode things like the expressions on people's faces, you know, the tone of their voice, you know, their mannerisms, and you can sort of sense and kind of read the room and understand things. And I just wonder, too, as we become more disconnected as a society, where more and more of our interactions happen through a screen, you know, through our phone, because on social media or texting or this or that, we're losing maybe a little bit of our capacity to sort of socially decode other people's tones, expressions, words. And then that leads that same kind of, like you're saying, stress that you have when you're reading, when you're like, it takes effort to sort of figure out what's going on. Yeah, and I think, let's keep using this whole reading disorder example. So typically when we look at somebody who can't read well, we're, they have a certain IQ, they have a certain capacity, but when it comes to reading, they're not meeting that. So they might be in the 90th percentile in their IQ, but then their reading's in the 30th percentile, okay? A lot of times, you know, people might use the word dyslexia, that kind of thing, which is more of a layperson's term. But in the kind of the neuropsych space, reading comes to us in three different components that make up a really good reader, okay? And that's reading decoding, so that's the ability to figure out what the letters actually mean, turn them into words. There's fluency, so the speed at which you read. So if I, if I have somebody who has a fluency issue, they may, and that's different than their IQ, we might say, okay, this person needs more time when they're taking a standardized test. So that's a fluency. And then the third is comprehension. So I can decode really well. I'm really fast at reading. But then I can't, I don't understand what in the heck I just read, right? So those are three major components to reading, right? I love what you're kind of pulling out here. It's like, are we becoming uh, a society that is socially having these disorders? You know, is it a decoding issue? Okay. Is it the speed or the agility that we have socially because we, we're adept at picking up a nuance in the face and this and that? 
And then finally, that comprehension of stepping back and saying, well, what's the big picture here? You know, oh, the guy that cut me off got off on the off ramp that's for the local hospital. And I noticed that somebody in the seat looked like they were distressed. Maybe this guy's trying to get to the hospital for his wife who's having a baby. I don't know. Right. right? So there's a this ability to rise above it 300 feet and become sophisticated in our understanding of social interaction. I wonder, I've always wondered why, you know, we have four kids and there was a certain point at which some of my kids, the younger ones, and you know who you are, when I would say when there's a problem with something, well, just call the person or just call the company that charged you for the thing, you know, and, and just sort it out over the phone and be like, oh, I can't do that. <laughs> you know, <laughs> right. it's like, what do you mean? Well, I got to find a chat for this or right. a text for this or an email for this. And I'm like, that's not going to cut it. Like you got to, yeah. you know, and I think we've kind of, that that's a sophistication that involves a social relationship. So you can pick up the nuance on the phone, like, hey, let me explain to you what's going on. And that takes time and energy. Well, and we're going to talk about this in our next conversation about how we got here. But relevant to this exact point is that during the same 20 to 25 year period that we see the rise of these kinds of disorders and social disorders, mental disorders, it parallels is exactly coincidental to the the increase of technology, yeah, social media. So a statistic we'll share in the next episode, but the average person now in America spends 11 hours a day mm. looking at a screen, their phone, computer at work, screen on the wall, 11 hours a day. That's, that's, that's most of their waking day. And most of their interactions with people occur through that screen. So it's typing a text message. It's typing a, right? I think I've shared this story before, but years ago I was at a conference and we had this panel discussion and there was this guy who was on the panel and he was, he was like one of the old advertising agency executives from the sixties in New York, like the Madison Avenue guys, like the mad men guys. Yeah. Right. And he was talking about the kids these days or whatever and changes in society. And he said, you know, I'll walk to the office today. And he said, I'll see somebody sitting at their desk going clack, 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 clack. And he's like, what are you doing? And he says, I'm talking to so-and-so. And I go, well, wh wh who are you talking to? Her? It's like, she's 10 feet away. <laughs> well, I know I'm sending her a message or, you know, I'm messaging with her. And he goes, get up and go talk to her. And he said, you know, in my day, we had to argue about things. Yes. And we go down to the bar after work and we get in shouting matches and fist fights and everything else. But there was a, a sort of, you had to work on sort of working things out with real people in the you know real world, in real space, face to face. And that's where, you know, I'd be curious your thoughts too as a pediatric neuropsychologist, because when you deprive children of interactions where they don't see faces, hear tones of voice, they don't have those interactions. Because one of the things is that the average... Uh, I think it was the average uh, four-year-old now spends three hours a day on screens because mm. people are handing him iPads or whatever. So at two and three years old, they're already looking at screens. And are they learning to decode people's faces, their tone of voice, their mannerisms? And then does that lead to this sort of funnel you're talking about? So Yeah. I would even say our experience right now, like looking at uh, what we're doing, yeah. Like we've done 30 some, if not 40 podcasts this year, right? And just looking back at the ones where we've done them, like across the table from each yeah. other right now. They're the best ones. They are always, they always because are. Because you're making eye contact with somebody. You're, 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 you're reading all that. It's all the, right? It's, it's, it's all those nonverbal Cues. Absolutely. I can see where you're going. You can see where I'm going. There's an engagement and it comes out in the podcast is that because of that kind of bedrock of a relationship as we're doing this, can it work when I'm in the Canary Islands and you're in you know, Michigan? It can work and it does work and we get information out. But my personal experience as I'm doing this is like, this is different. Like I can remember the time in the woods at your place, right? 
I can remember our first three that we did in yeah. in that one conference room, yeah. and it was like it was just electric. Yeah, you know, I could I could just feel right. the energy, and it's it's hard to describe what that is, but it's it's this relational back and forth, and you know, if we just kind of look at our lives and say, you know, what relationships are really important to us, and how are we able to decrease the amount of digital components to that and make them flesh and blood. And we talk about the presence. I can tell you, our listeners out there, there's not a person that has had a huge, had had a major impact on your life that wasn't present with you. It wasn't some type of flesh blood experience that reaching over and touching you and, and holding your hand or putting their arm around you. You can't describe that in a text. You can't describe that in an email. And there's an emptiness that happens in our souls when we don't have that. And that's part of what we're going to talk about in the next episode, which are these, you know, fractures in the system. So as we kind of wind this one down, let's get into the thing that we've been, we've been trying. We've been circling. It's like we've been circling the airport trying to land the plane here. But, but okay, so the four horsemen you know, of the mental health apocalypse, according to statistics in America. And again, CDC, National Institute of Health, American Psychological Association. There's a consensus on the sources. Okay. Four horsemen, anxiety, depression, PTSD, and substance abuse. Those are the things that are at the top of every list of the things that Americans and increasingly people in the developed world struggle with their mental disorders. So here's our lightning round, Doc. Let's run down the four horsemen. What is anxiety? What is depression? What is PTSD? And what is substance abuse? First of all, I would say that all four of them are downstream components of an upstream disruption in the autonomic nervous system. Uh, PTSD, the person has experienced some type of traumatic event where the system has gone into a self-protective mechanism by speeding up every response in the body, decreasing sleep and recovery because it needs to speed up to deal with the fact that it's in a foxhole and there's bullets coming over the head, or they don't know if the person's going to come into their room in the middle of the night and abuse them. So the system, the autonomic nervous system, starts to activate very fast to protect it and something gets activated called the HPA axis, which is this stress response. And it becomes such a learned thing that it can't be unlearned. So then the person's out of that situation in PTSD, but they're still experiencing the one eye open while they're sleeping response. Now, in the DSM, <clears throat> it'll describe these things as downstream behaviors that, yes, we can check those boxes, but we want the listeners to be looking upstream and those you know boxes have to do with you know disruption from job and relationships and those things because of the the ptsd we're looking at the neurophysiological things that you can measure absolutely so so again for those listeners maybe who are you know haven't stuck with us for a year or whatever a lot of times when we look at the dsm and these downstream behaviors as you say it'd be like saying hey you know i have a my wrist hurts Right. And you go, well, you have you have wrist hurting syndrome, right? Yeah. Or when I go play tennis, I tend to not be able to, you know, hit the ball straight because I have wrist, tennis wrist. You go, right, but that doesn't actually tell me what's going on with the bones and the muscles. Right. That's where I go get the MRI and the doctor is able to say, hey, you've got this muscle inserting into this bone this way, right? And he's able to actually look at the the physiological cause of that. And that's what what your work is about, what Inner Armor is about, what what Royer Neuroscience is about, is we're saying it's not just enough to look at that behavior, can't hold a job, snaps at people. Right. But what's really going on? And that's where you're going to measure the brain. You're going to measure the nervous system. You're going to measure their hormonal balances and so forth. Yeah, so like in PTSD, well, think about what you experience if you were in a foxhole in the middle of a battle on the front lines and there's bullets coming over your head, racing thoughts, hypervigilance, reaction to any noise <laughs> that you hear. These are normal reactions in a very abnormal situation. But in PTSD, that situation's over 
and you're still having those recurring behavioral responses. It's a, in order to address this, we have to go upstream and teach the autonomic nervous system how to unlock itself from these things that it, it's trapped into, right? Now, in our culture, and we'll get into this probably in three episodes or a couple, I don't know, that just talking about that or over-medicating that to slow the system down isn't going to resolve the unlocking of the autonomic nervous system in most cases. Substance abuse, okay, I would see that again as uh, you can come up with behaviors that describe that, like, you know, hurting wrist syndrome, you know, behaviors that affect work, affect relationships, that have created an obsessional quality around this substance. But let's go upstream and say, what's going on? Well, we have an automatic response in our body to protect ourselves, And when we get out of balance, the body will do whatever it can to try to find a way to balance that. Homeostasis. Yes, it's trying to do that. And so there's an out of balance, a lot of times an anxiousness, a, a, an overall pervasive tension in the system that is just creating chaos for the person. And their world is disrupted, and they find that if they use a substance, it kind of numbs all that, or it slows them down. I think a really good example is in the area of marijuana use, is marijuana releases alpha waves in the brain, which are frequencies that are slower frequencies between 8 and 12. And when the system is really anxious, it has very fast frequencies, like 26, 27, 28, 29 hertz. These are very fast. They're very stressful if they're they're there for a long period of time. They're meant to deal with crisis. But if I use marijuana, it will force my brain to make these 8 to 12 hertz. So it kind of, not kind of, it slows the brain down. And there's other substances, alcohol, other things that will also speed up the system. Like if I feel like I can't get engaged, then if I, you know, use some form of an amphetamine, I can speed that system up. And so, I'm, in a sense, what's happening in substance abuse is, not in a sense, what is happening in substance abuse is the autonomic nervous system is out of balance. And the body and brain is seeking for a way to balance that. And I can do all kinds of things to try to redirect that behavior, try to address that behavior, but if I have not fix the underlying autonomic dysregulation, I'll keep looking, I'll keep searching for that thing to reduce the autonomic nervous system speed or increase the speed, okay? Let's work our way up to depression, which is pretty close to anxiety, but depression we see, see as kind of a learned helplessness, is that the system is it's kind of like in like animal studies what you see you can create depressive responses in animals by putting them in a situation that they can't escape from and they try to do something to escape which they think is the answer but you keep let that you keep that from happening so back when you could do this kind of stuff they would shock the bottom of a cage of an animal and the animal would think that it could jump in time but it couldn't and so eventually the animal will actually like lay down and just let you shock it, which is really profound. Like, Weird, yeah. Is they go from this anxious, bouncing around the cage, you know, I gotta get out, gotta get out, and then eventually they just lay down and give up. Wow. Depression is that moment in time. Is wow. where the, the tension has hit you so much, the thoughts, you know, outside it, of you, everything might look a certain way, but inside of you, the brain is bouncing from one thing to another, or it's saying these things about yourself, or about your situation, you cannot get out of it, you're stuck, you get angry about that, irritable about that, and then you turn that in on yourself, and you just lay down on the shock, the cage, that the floor of the cage is shocking you. And that, that response, that giving up, that hopelessness, that thoughts of suicide, those kind of things are really from that inability to kind of escape from this pressure. But 
in the autonomic nervous system world, we can see that in parasympathetic responses in the nervous system. And we have to address that slowing down of the system by speeding it up internally, not externally. Dopamine, serotonin, these are good things that our body needs to be making. But if we're just relying on that being synthetic forms, we haven't fixed the downshifting of the nervous system into a way that it's causing a lot of these depressive symptoms. Interesting enough, I mentioned alpha earlier for marijuana, but there are some lower frequencies in alpha which are correlated with depression. Mm -hmm. And that's why long-term use of marijuana many times can lead to that kind of thing. And then the last one, the prevalent one is the anxiety. Which and that's not just worrying, right? Because that's, I think, no. what a lot of people think anxiety is just worrying about things. More than that, right? Oh, yeah. It's an overwhelming sense of now your physiological makeup is, is completely overtaken. Your heart is racing fast. Your breathing is shallow. Your brain is running 100 miles a minute. You can't sleep at night. You have insomnia. You wake up in the middle of the night. You're obsessing about things ruminating and that is an autonomic nervous system that's going too fast it's in a sympathetic state that we've talked about before and what we have to understand in these four things is downstream they may look very different and they are different upstream but they're not going to be solved if we don't address the dysregulation in the autonomic nervous system and that's what we're about at Royer Neuroscience and Inner, Inner Armor is we're about regulating the autonomic nervous system. Sometimes I've used this phrase, we have never really applied it to anything, but, I, but uh, ANSR or ANSWER, which I say is autonomic nervous system regulation. And the answer for a lot of these things is teaching the autonomic nervous system to get back into balance, homeostasis, and regulate itself. So... When we look at 40% of, of Americans are experiencing anxiety in any given year, when you have a country of 340 million people, every percentage point represents 3.4 million. So a 40% anxiety mm. rate means that 136 million Americans will experience anxiety, an anxiety disorder. And at the rate of growth that we have, in 10 years, we're looking at 150 million Americans dealing with anxiety. Now, we're going to stop here, and in our next conversation, we're going to keep going here talking this morning, but in the next conversation, we're going to talk about how we got here. Yeah. Because you can't look around and go, oh my gosh, half of America is suffering a mental disorder, and it's growing at this exponential rate, and not say, how did this happen, and what are the causes that are driving it? So. Stick with us for that, and that'll be our next episode. But thanks, Doc. Oh, it's great being with you, Greg. Thank you. This has been the Inner Armor Podcast. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts. Would you please follow or subscribe and make sure to leave us a review or comment? You can learn more about Inner Armor, Dr. Royer, and how to perform at your potential by going to forgeinnerarmor.com